Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us on this Friday. Lots to get to. We are going to continue the conversation about children back in school and what preparations are being done for that. Also coming up on the program, the restriction levels in place. So whether you live in BC, Manitoba, Ontario, a bit of a difference of opinion when it comes to Canadians and where their comfort level is with COVID-19 restrictions. We're going to talk about that just after the 12.30 news. A lot of rescues taking place on the North Shore. We will check in with the North Shore Rescue Team Leader and see what they're gearing up for for the weekend. And uh, coming up on the program as well, if you're in need of a home renovation, maybe you've been thinking about doing some renos, well, there is a new show and it's coming to Vancouver and they are looking for people who want to renovate their homes. What do you get out of the deal? Well, you get a great reno and you get a lot of free stuff. We're going to talk about that in the final hour of the program. But first, as we've been talking about every day this week, there is a lot of concern, a lot of questions still about the return to school, what exactly it's going to look like. We know that it was pushed back a bit to a more staggered return with teachers, administrators, staff members coming back on September 8th, students starting to come back on September 10th. But we also heard from residents and we heard from parents. And just before we go to my first guest, I want to play for you this tiny uh, clip from Stacey Wakeline, who was on Mornings with Simi, the founder of a group called Safe September. Take a listen to what she said to Simi when asked about kind of that level of comfort of getting kids back in classrooms. A lot of parents that are concerned, they have um, health concerns and they're just concerned with there seems to be a lack of choice, whether it's Um, returning to the classroom or engaging in more of a distance learning option. They're worried that their kids will lose their seat in school if their child is not there. So we're hoping to see um, a little more answers in that regard. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a fluid situation. Let's bring in Darren Daniluk, President of the BC Principals and Vice President's Association. Darren joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Darren, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Sorry about that one buttoned off. And I think I said vice presidents, I meant vice principals. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, What are your thoughts on the comfort level and where we are as far as having a a pretty solid plan when kids do come back to schools? Mm -hmm. Well, first, the the minister's uh, announcement for the additional days of of preparation planning, I just want to say that that was met with, uh, well, appreciation. That was a good news decision on uh, the behalf of our members. We had been seeking some time to put together the plans and then, of course, collaborate with our staff, teaching staff and support staff on site. And uh, we weren't necessarily looking for that time in that first week, but that's how it was found. And uh, it will certainly go a long way in helping us be prepared for the safest return possible. Is that two days enough, do you think? I think it'll certainly be enough for for many locations in the province. Of course, we have a huge province and uh, a vast array of differences from, uh, you know, corner to corner in respect to the size and the complexity of the sites. So in some cases, two days will be perhaps even more than than, than what they might need. For our larger secondary schools, two days might be challenging, but uh, it's, it's wonderful to have that time with our staffs on site to be prepared together. And are there people working on this right now? I know a lot of teachers have said they don't come back till the 8th, they don't get paid until the 8th, but are there administrators and others that are working on this now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that work began long before today. Uh, actually, much of it, some of it, sorry, took place in June for that matter. But absolutely great right following uh, Canada Day, 
we had principals and vice principals as part of the steering committee that the minister had um, had formed. And then, of course, the working groups within that steering committee has representation for principals and vice principals, along with other partners in the sector. And they have been diligently working all these weeks to come up with uh, the plan and, and uh, measures to the plan so that we can open up safely. Uh, because there have been some parents uh, that have contacted uh, us uh, at the radio station and teachers as well saying uh, that they waiting for more details and, and knowing that they're going to get more details towards the end of August, August 26, but they'd like to have more details now. Is it possible, do you think, to share more information with people? Um, is it possible? That's a good question. Uh, we are still ourselves waiting for some details. And once more, I'll just repeat, we do have representation sitting upon the working groups and the steering committee. But it's really important that the information be, be clear and concise and accurate. And we're actually very much looking forward on Monday. We anticipate receiving a set of the latest set of operational guidelines. And many of these details will help our principals and vice principals address some of the concerns and questions families have about the safe return, some of the detailed pieces of it. So that's as soon as Monday we'll have some information um, that may be helpful. But in terms of details of the specific plans, we're going to need all the time that we have. And we have until the 21st of August uh, as schools and districts to submit plans to the ministry for their review. And that, uh, that time is going to be valuable. We're going to need that. And is that is it going to work from your understanding then similar to restaurants in that restaurants submitted plans saying we can open this many tables, this much space, we can have this many, the, this many, these many patrons. Will it be similar schools saying in this amount of space, we can have this many students and it'll kind of be the, the, the same protocols as restaurants have to follow schools will follow a set of rules as well? Uh, well, in that regard, there will be similarity in that we'll have a set of protocols. Now, uh, you know, a school is it's a controlled environment as opposed to a restaurant, which is less so, obviously. And uh, I've seen a template, a draft template of the plan's design that will be submitted. And, you know, the, the details of the plan that will be submitted are going to come from the restart plan that the ministry has produced for us. And that, of course, was informed by the document from the Ministry of Health, uh, Public Health Guidance for K-12 and school settings. So as we've done since the beginning of this, this pandemic in British Columbia, we've taken, our, um, we've, take, we've taken our direction from the medical health professionals and the medical community, and uh, to this point, they have certainly served us well. And so we're going to continue to take that direction and apply um, the protocols as they have been spelled out for us and shared with us in the plans available. And is the work being done, as far as you know right now, uh, the actual work of making space in classrooms, whether it's bringing back individual desks rather than tables, removing furniture if that space is needed, that kind of thing? There certainly may be. I couldn't speak to the details in, in each site specifically. At this point, it is, uh, as you noted, many teachers are not um, while teachers certainly don't come back to work until the beginning of the school year, there may be some teachers around the province, uh, part of teams, you know, through some mechanism that was locally um, arranged or agreed upon. But generally, it's our principals, our vice principals, and our senior teams in school districts that are at tables working out the, the details of applying the protocol model, sorry, not the protocol, the uh, cohort models to the various settings that we have. And once again, they, they range so so dramatically. I was speaking with a principal in a small small school, an elementary school, and the entire school is only one cohort. There's fewer than 60 students to be considered. Now, that's the one extreme. And, of course, at the other end of that, we have a secondary school of 2,000 students that's going to have to entertain you know, multiple cohorts. 
So the, the task at hand is different depending upon where you are. But to your question, uh, sure, they might be moving tables around, but right now I think they're doing the heavy lifting of the design of cohorts and how to apply that and how to group students in a logical and safe manner. Uh, as a principal yourself, what is your main concern heading into the school year? Communication, and it's clearly understood uh, in our communities and parents have uh, and staff, you know, they have a sense of assurance and, and an understanding of the, the plan and its rationale. And they, um, you know, that, that relationship of trust that exists in communities across the province with schools and, and the people that attend them, that the communication is clear and consistent because it's on that basis that trust is built. Do you see it being a model as well of students, that there will be students back in physically in the classrooms? And even Dr. Henry has talked about how important that is for students' mental and physical health and socialization. Uh, but for students that maybe choose to, they would rather do online, they want to stay home. Do you see that being, uh, being, there being the ability to do that kind of hybrid model come September? Uh, September? Uh, when you speak of a hybrid model, it makes me think of what was happening in the spring, and that was a challenging um, design. And although the plan does does have allowance, or it speaks to an allowance for uh, and the necessity for some hybrid design, particularly in larger secondary schools. Um, but of course, parent choice. Uh, when you speak of that, having access to online learning as opposed to face to face, that's always been choice for, there for parents, and I absolutely see that continuing this fall. But hybrid models, again, depending upon where in the province and the complexity of the school, there may or may not be a hybrid design in place. All right. We'll leave it there for today. I know it's a busy time, so appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Joe. Well, a new poll released by the Angus Reid Institute takes a look at how Canadians are feeling about the restrictions in their own provinces when it comes to COVID-19, whether they think they go too far, don't go far enough, or are about right. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Angus Reid Institute Research Director Dave Korzynski. Dave, thanks so much for being here. No problem. Happy to join you, Joe. Uh, so you asked people those three things, um, where they stand mm-hmm. as far as the restrictions. What kind of results did you get? Yeah, we got a pretty uh, divided nation, actually. So if you look at, uh, across the country generally, we can kind of hone in on BC afterwards. But if you look across the country, about 50% of Canadians are, are pretty satisfied with what they're seeing from their provincial government. 52% say that they're they're hitting the right mark in terms of allowing people the freedom to go out and, you know, spend their money and, and see friends and family and not really, uh, you know, holding them back too much or, or, or putting too many controls in place. But what we see also is that 28% say that the regulations aren't going far enough. This group is quite worried about the coronavirus and, you know, particularly in Western Canada with our, our rates uh, growing over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, 28% saying that they need to be tighter. And there's another 20%, one in five, who say that they push back a little bit and say that the, you know, the, the restrictions have gone too far. Um, and those people are, are most likely to be in uh, Alberta and Quebec, uh, a little more likely to lead conservative um, in their, their political preferences. But uh, yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a difficult uh, balancing act. I think you're seeing that in BC over the last couple of days here with a, a lot of people asking for more and, and the government saying that, you know, people just need to be smarter. 
Um, so it's it's a kind of a window into the difficult balance that governments are, are undertaking right now. It is interesting to look at it from province to province. And like you mentioned in Quebec, uh, with that group saying that the measures have gone too far, but also the numbers and the cases in Quebec are, are the highest. Yeah, you know, there we, we see Quebec and Alberta oftentimes at odds on certain issue, issues, particularly uh, economic issues, environmental issues. But on this one, they are, they are quite aligned in in feeling at the highest levels that uh, too much is being done. And you know, Quebec is actually um, in in terms of the the more uh, liberal restrictions. Quebec is is doing pretty well, but they they do have a uh, mandatory mask policy in place. So that's one of the things that I think uh, respondents are really um, pushing back on a little bit. That's that's been in our data since we've been doing this, the mask issue uh, and the vaccine issue are the two that tend to generate the most um, kind of uh, angst or anger among people who feel like they're, they're being foisted upon them. So Quebec is doing really well. Um, and I think that you, you see those low case numbers for basically two months straight now, um, quite low and, and people pushing back and saying, okay, now's the time to open things up a bit. Whereas in a place like Manitoba that was doing very well uh, throughout May, June, and July, their uh, their residents are aligned with BC in being the most likely to say that they they do need to tighten up restrictions. Uh, their prior, our premier has been trying to advocate for tourism for the province. That has been controversial, um, and I think that that helps to show why you know with, with numbers rising in Manitoba and numbers rising in BC, residents there are a little more likely to say that yeah we have to tighten things up. Uh, which makes sense uh, for sure that we would see those those types of results. Uh, I found it interesting too that that overall the the um, the group that says are about right it does uh, it sticks it's all under sixty percent but it's all quite similar. Yeah, it is uh, that that kind of baseline of of having about half the population saying that that the governments are doing about right is is that's the good news I think for provincial governments across the country is that basically half of of residents are saying that they are doing well, and then the other half have tend to disagree. What you see is a huge gender split, though, which I think was one of the more interesting parts of this, and, and really is something that we've seen. Um, men of all age groups, if you compare them to uh, women of the same age group, are basically about twice as likely to say that the restrictions are going too far, um, whereas uh, women lean quite heavily towards saying that they don't go far enough when you compare them with with that kind of opposition group. Um, so it really is men that are leading the pushback, um, particularly men under the age of 55 who feel like the, they're they're being restricted too much. Whereas it's, it's relatively uncontroversial among women, you know, 31% of young women, despite the fact that we see in our data that they are out the most, uh, along with young men, 31% of them say that the restrictions don't go far enough compared to the 13% who say that they're going too far. So uh, women are more amenable to, to tightening things up and, and uh, it's, it's kind of younger men who, who push back and don't want uh, these, these restrictions placed on them. Hmm, that is interesting. Uh, you also asked about uh, the popular or the ratings for premiers and how premiers have been uh, dealing with this and responding to this. Yeah, the the news is is good and bad for the premiers uh, across the country. The, the bad news is that, um, and this is to be expected, their approval ratings have all fallen over the course of the last few months as we've watched their handling turn from 
you know, dealing with the early days of the crisis, which was strictly, you know, keeping people safe from a health impact um, and kind of moving toward building up uh, to, to reopening economies and phasing in the reopening strategies. So people have been a little bit more critical across the country. Um, for John Horgan, he actually hasn't uh, dropped down that much. His his April approval number on COVID was 82 percent, and he was at 83 uh, percent early in July. And now we find early in August here that he's at 74 percent. So it's a slight decline, but still among the highest approval in the country, along with uh, perhaps surprisingly for a lot of people, Ontario's Doug Ford and uh, with Quebec's Francois Legault. The two premiers who are having a difficult time is uh, Pallister out in Manitoba. We've kind of talked about a little bit of the challenges they're dealing with and, and some questions about his, his leadership style during this, uh, this pandemic. And then Jason Kenney performs worst in the country with just 51% of residents saying that he's handling this well. Um, and I think a lot of that is based on the handling of the school districts and some, some issues that are being um, uh, arising there because of the cuts that were made early in the pandemic. And uh, so Alberta a little bit less satisfied, whereas in B.C., I think these numbers are subject to change given how this week is going. Um, but three quarters say they're satisfied with the way that John Horgan has handled it thus far. All right. Interesting findings uh, for sure. Dave, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, anytime. Thanks. Well, earlier today, there was an announcement from Bruce Ralston. He is the Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources, telling B.C. drivers they can look forward to more transparency and greater accountability when it comes to gasoline and diesel fuel prices. He was talking about the Fuel Price Transparency Act that was passed back in the fall of 2019. Uh, He says that now there are new mandatory reporting requirements for the wholesale market. Uh, He was asked, though, if he believes and thinks that companies will, in fact, comply. This is a, a step that occurs uh, in, in a number of American states. Uh, and so the companies, I think, have, uh, have, uh, have agreed to provide the information. It's information that they collect anyway in, order, in the ordinary course of their business. So it will not be onerous for them to collect and uh, provide this information to the BC Utilities Commission. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, Canadians for Affordable Energy president. Dan, thanks for being with us. Oh, good to be here, Jill. Thank Uh, you. Again, this was the Fuel Price Transparency Act passed in the fall, effective today, uh, saying that companies that import, purchase, store and distribute gasoline and diesel products intended for sale at retail locations will need to make those regular reports. Uh, That starts in October to the BCUC. Will this make any difference, do you think? I don't think so. Uh, You know, uh, most platforms, in other words, where many of the companies get their information, uh, Platts being an example, uh, these are uh, organizations that are devoted to, you know, giving you the benchmarks, Opus, Oil Price Information Service, uh, Bloomberg. There's a number of ways in which you can get those wholesale prices. What I think it might do, though, is uh, have the uh, opposite effect of what I think the government has uh, hoped for. And that's not so much to point a finger at the oil industry and say, hey, you're you're ripping us off. It may also reveal just how much it's costing for BC's low carbon fuel standard, uh, BC's um, carbon tax. All of these things and the cost of compliance and buying credits and mixing ethanol, all of these things have a cost. And of course, other jurisdictions that uh, uh, BC tends to get the lion's share of its fuel from, that is Alberta, uh, and of course Washington State, don't have the same standards. So you have, in effect, a boutique gasoline made higher 
by government regulations. And I guess my lament last year when we spoke about this, uh, Jill, was that um, if the government wants to be transparent, do an open uh, book on what is costing uh, consumers as much, it has to look at taxes, that's fine. But it also has to look at the regulations that are involved with, which make the price of fuel that much more expensive in BC, here in Vancouver, uh, and where we don't see the similar kind of parallel happening in other jurisdictions where they don't have similar, uh, you know, high regulations on, uh, on the quality and standard of fuel. Because people will remember back to when we had the the group, the commission looking at this, taxes wasn't part of the scope of what they were looking at. And then there was that, that, was it the 13 cents number, the 13 number of, we didn't know where that money was going, but it was costing us more. (laughs) And you know, I've done dozens of interviews uh, here uh, many, many times talking about 8 to 13 cent mystery cents. Actually, call it 15 cents. So the 13 cents I will agree there is a 13 cent premium that is being paid. The question is, is it because BC finds itself in, in a position of vulnerability where it relies on external sources for its gasoline? I think some of that could be explained there. But I think what has been missing in all this and why I was disappointed with uh, the Horgan government's uh, uh, shortcutting, if you will, uh, in, in trying to go for transparency, they basically said, no, we're not going to look at government regulations and their effect on driving up the price of fuel. Look. BC has a boutique type of gasoline, and BC doesn't produce enough gasoline to meet its own domestic needs. So it has to knock on the door of the neighboring province of Alberta, or from time to time, as I mentioned earlier, Washington State. They're going to supply it for you, but they're also going to add a premium. And so there's there's a cost for premium gasoline. And I think it's uh, what is likely to happen here, and I'm really hoping this will be the case, is that a government down the road is going to say, hey, we are just as much... Uh, responsible for this, as is the oil industry. Uh, we uh, share in the responsibility of driving these prices up so that you could very well see another scenario where you're back to $1.70 a litre of gasoline once the pandemic and the demand destruction is gone. We could very well find ourselves in the same boat we were in uh, a year and a half ago when all of this uh, really uh, erupted. And of course, uh, the government's position was Let's have the BC Utilities Commission look into it, but we're not going to allow them to look at the the cost, the real cost and effect and indirect costs of uh, the low carbon fuel standard, as well as other regulations on gasoline that no one else has to meet anywhere uh, in in the jurisdictions which provide us the lion's share of our fuel. So even when we do start getting these numbers, if we do start getting these numbers come October and talking about the reports, so they have yeah. to report on the price, the uh, the price of fuel imports, storage, bulk sales, wholesale prices, yeah. even if we get all of that information, it kind of sounds like we'll be in the same situation of we can still figure out there. there's these mystery scents out there yeah. and probably still pointing in the same direction as where they were from the commission. Well, look, I think the oil companies uh, wanted to come out and say, hey, this is where a lot of our cost is going to. You know, having to store ethanol isn't uh, like simply uh, storing gasoline. You have to separate it because of uh, contamination, water issues, different pipeline, different logistics. That has a cost. I'm not saying it's the all the only difference that makes up the 13 cents, but it certainly accounts for, I think, the lion's share of why I think we're seeing a price differential. There's also a trading market, a credit market. Now, the people are going to say that's only three or four or five cents. But, you know, three cents here, five cents there. Uh, and, of course, uh, the fact that we pay a premium for our gasoline because you're asking someone else to provide you a, a standard that they themselves don't provide themselves on a regular basis. Of course, you're going to pay for it. Same thing with California. They have the same problem with uh, boutique gasoline, the cost X tax being much higher than other jurisdictions. But that aside, I think this is going to provide transparency, not just by allowing oil companies to finally say, 
hey, we, we can't hide behind the Competition Act anymore and say that we were, we're betraying information that could get us in trouble with the Competition Bureau. They can actually now say, hey, we're allowed to do this because we're required to do this. And we'll see if they come up and say and confirm what I think uh, many of them know but could not say. And that's that uh, a lot of this mystery sense uh, can be attributed to government policy as opposed to what we're trying to do. And that's to provide a, uh, a region that is short on gasoline and needs uh, uh, external sources to supplement its, uh, its needs. And you kind of touched on this, but for consumers, the one question is going to be, will this have an impact on gas prices? What are we going to see when it comes to gas prices in the future? Well, it'll allow us a better understanding of whether we're being ripped off or not. I mean, look, it's not just pipeline problems you have in the province. You get gasoline to our market, say, for instance, here in Vancouver, you have to rail it. Everybody knows that it costs a lot more to rail than it does to pipeline. Um, That could be, you know, yet another example of why the situation is what it is. We may not be able to do much about it, but at least we'll have a better, firmer understanding of what the provincial government was prepared to allow the BCUC to determine for us, rather than saying conveniently, we're not going to let you look at regulation and then come up with, oh, well, we can't find 13 mystery cents. I can find it for you very simply. And I, I said this many, many times for the past two, three years. Look at your regulations and look at the effect they're having on the adding to the cost of every liter of gasoline. Once we've determined that, maybe it's five to eight cents, maybe it's four cents. But let's start there and let's be transparent because that's a two-way street. Government has to be transparent in the same way industry has to be transparent. And goodness knows, Jill, many times I'll call you guys up and say the price of gas is going up (laughs) in a couple of days. I let people know in advance because there is transparency on the pricing side. That's why this thing is going to be very interesting. I think it's going to uh, be a bit of an unintended consequence for the government that might be beating its chest saying this is a great thing. In fact, uh, be careful what you wish for. Right, because my guess is that you had you would have a reaction to this direct quote from Bruce Ralston today. He says that by pulling back the curtain, the action we are taking today will help ensure industry is held publicly accountable for unexplained markups and prices increases. And I would agree with that statement, except for the word industry. I think it's industry and your own government. That she adds to the word industry, our own government. And I think when we get to that point, uh, consumers who don't want to play politics want to know why. Uh, want a, an explanation before they make a determination. Let's have transparency. Let's put a bit of light on all of this so that everyone has a better understanding of just what we're facing. And I think at the end of all this, the government and industry can do a better job not only explaining what's happened, but also come to the idea that uh, consumers uh, really need some help. Maybe there's some policies that could change that uh, could bring prices down. One of them is very clear. You can't have an environment where, you know, you're the only game in town that wants these high and demands these high standards for gasoline, but don't have the ability to pay for it unless you ask someone else for it. And people are willing to do that, but they will do it at a cost. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we're having this frustrating discussion. Uh, You know, again, Vancouver, uh, it's not lost on most of us outside of Vancouver that the highest taxed jurisdiction for gasoline is right in your town. And so uh, let's start from there. Let's have an open, honest and transparent discussion about this. And when, we're pro- when we do that, uh, I think uh, October, I'm expecting a little bit more in the way of explanation that I think will give people an understanding of balance. This is really, as I mentioned earlier, a two-way street. Government has to be as transparent as the industry itself. All right, Dan, thanks so much. We'll leave it there for today. Oh, that's great. Have a great weekend. 
Well, as you've been hearing on the news, North Shore Rescue has been called out three times in a very short period of time, three calls for help. And uh, it's already been a very busy month for North Shore Rescue as well. That's even with the increased warnings about being prepared, knowing where you're going, especially because we are dealing with COVID-19 on top of everything else. So let's bring in Mike Danks, who is a North Shore Rescue team leader. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show, Jill. We appreciate it. Well, it seemed like it was a timely reminder, given that you guys have been called out, what is it, three times in the last 12 hours? Yeah, it's been, um, yeah, we've essentially had a call or two every day since Sunday. So it's been slightly overwhelming, to say the least. And I think a lot of these calls um, are highly preventable. I mean, we do have some that are, you know, for a medical of nature, which, of course, um, we totally understand. But when you have hikers that are very unprepared, it can be quite frustrating. Uh, can you tell us a bit about these last three calls? Where, where were they and what did they involve? For sure. So um, it started uh, yesterday on St. Mark's, and that's with a, a couple of hikers um, that were in their 50s, and they were doing the house on Crest Trail. They were well prepared. Unfortunately, one of them took a bit of a fall, had a head laceration and some potential spinal um, damage so uh we had a physician respond to that that subject was long lined out the next call uh came last night at about 9 30 and that was for three hikers in their 30s that had gone up coliseum mountain uh with no extra gear no extra clothing no light source um and they called because they were stuck in darkness um on a really remote trail up the coliseum mountain um for us to send crews in there you know, to, to comfort them, if you will, till the morning. I hate to say it, but just based on how busy we were, it just wasn't something we were able to do. So, you know, we told them, you got to hunker down, you're going to survive the night, and we'll come get you in the morning. Um, so that was kind of being shelved. We were monitoring that situation that night, um, and it was about one thirty last night or in the morning that we got another call for a, an overdue hiker on Mount Seymour. Um and again, this one was uh, from uh, the subject's girlfriend. He was very worried that uh, he hadn't returned, and he was somewhere in the Elsie Lake area. Um, and just to add to the Coliseum call, when the parties did get through to call for help, they said they were on Mount Seymour. <laughs> so, ah. so I think, you know, making sure you know actually what mountain you're on making sure that you have ample daylight hours to do it and that you're prepared for the conditions at hand. So for us in the morning, I mean, we're up at first light. We've got a, a couple of Talon helicopters up. Uh, we're able to locate the subject that was on the Elsie Lake Trail. He um, actually was fine. He spent the night out. He had very little extra clothing or a light source with him, but he wanted to continue on his hike, um, which is great. But the problem is... You know, he left his vehicle in the parking lot at Mount Seymour. You're not permitted to do that um, unless you have a a note in your vehicle that says what you're doing. Mm. So, you know, for us, we got the call from the police who in turn got the call from the subject's girlfriend saying, you know, he was overdue and missing. So for us, I mean, that's a call. So it really, that call could have been prevented by just putting a note in the vehicle and saying, hey, you know what, I might be out overnight don't worry about me until this this time, if you will. Um, 
for the three on Coliseum, we're able to to get into a heli spot close to where they were, um, get them rewarmed quickly, and bring them back to our Bone Creek SAR station. So that call was over pretty quickly. But again, these um, these just tax our resources. Right. For, it's, it sounds like of the three calls you had, only the first one, the other two could have easily been prevented. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what do you say to people then that uh, there are more people here this year because nobody's traveling internationally and instead we are having all of these staycations? I know it's been a busy month for you guys. Uh, again, I, I know you say it every year, but what's the message then? Especially this is going to be another hot weekend. People are going to be out hiking. What's the message? Yeah, again, like it's about doing the research on the hike that you want to do. Um, some of the other calls that we had during this week were for people that were trying to do the Haynes Valley Trail, which is a a big hike. Um, you gain some serious elevation. There's some big distance there. Um, they just weren't really prepared for it. They weren't able to navigate that trail. So do the research before the hike. Make sure it's appropriate to your fitness level. If you have a GPS, hopefully you do. Input the coordinates of waypoints along that hike so you can stay on track. Um, another thing that would have really helped is the satellite device, just so you can check in with people and say, hey, I'm okay, you don't need to send resources to come find me. Um, one of the things I do want to mention is we did have a call for two ladies that were overdoing the Haynes Valley, and they made some really good decisions. They, they got off trail quite far back in the Haynes. There's no cell reception back there. Um, they had told the husband to meet uh, them at 6 o'clock at Grouse Mountain. At 7 o'clock, he called for help. We flew into the Haynes Valley, and they were, were brilliant. They got off trail. They went back to the last known position. They wrote on the trail two ladies, and they pointed the direction that they were going back to Lynn Headwaters, which saved us a huge amount of time. Um, in the long run. So there's little things you can do that make a big difference down the road. So sorry, when you say they wrote on the trail, did they have paper and with them, were they posted on the trail? No, so they just took a stick and wrote in the dirt on the trail. Ah. In a couple separate locations, pointing the direction that they had gone. The kind of crazy thing about that was they wrote two ladies and they put the arrow. So we were looking for them. That call came in at 7 o'clock. And at 9.30 p.m., we had two other uh, women hikers that were reported overdue as well. So we were wondering which one it was. But uh, anyway, when we were looking for the first two, we ended up coming across the second two. So um, both calls ended up well. But again, you know, that research on the front end really makes a big difference. Um, hydration and, and staying, you know, Keeping your energy level up with food is going to be key this weekend for sure. And even though, too, uh, and again, we repeat this all the time, but it's going to be very warm during the day. But uh, I've even started noticing it in the evenings. It's getting cool again. So if you're out there and you don't have a jacket or anything and you end up spending a bit more time than you anticipated, uh, I would imagine there's that risk as well. Oh, there totally is. And I can say that, you know, a couple of us spent the night um, up in the Coliseum area last night. And as soon as the sun goes down, though there's a light breeze, we were instantly wet. So you need to make sure you have those Gore-Tex layers to keep yourself dry. All right. Well, hopefully it's uh, not an overly busy weekend for you guys this weekend. But Mike, I know it's been very, very busy. So thanks for taking some time to join us today. You bet. Thanks for your time.